Good morning. I'm glad to be with you. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. In our last uh, trip in the book of Colossians, we had moved past the first chapter into the second chapter. We're starting to get to some practical application. And we talked um, about the struggle or the conflict of the Christian life, how it's really a a spiritual struggle. We're, We're struggling against spiritual powers that would seek to unseat our satisfaction in Christ, to draw our affections away from Christ. Um, to ultimately make us insecure in the sufficiency of Christ. We learned that it was a corporate struggle. We struggle together in the ministry of the word and in prayer for each other. Um, we learned that it was a struggle toward maturity, ultimately that we would be mature in Christ. That was the reason why Paul proclaimed the words to the Colossians. That was the reason why he interceded for them earnestly in prayer. And as we move on to the next two verses in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, We're really getting to structurally the center of the book. Um, We would understand this this two verses here really as the hinge of the book. We're we're going from the indicatives, the things that Paul is teaching them, the theology of the book of Colossians, to the imperatives, the things that the application of these truths that we're going to make in the Christian life. Um, So I'm going to uh actually back up to around verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1 and read through the text and I'm going to ask the Lord um, to help us this morning. So starting in verse 21, it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Father, I thank you for this time together. Lord, for the privilege that it is to worship together as your people that you've redeemed, called by your name. Lord, I pray um, as we approach your word, God, that you would humble us before it. 
that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things in your word, God. That you would be with me um, in grace, Lord, be with my mind and my mouth, that I would preach accurately and, and boldly and clearly in a way that exalts Christ, in a way that draws others to rejoice in what we have, what we have received in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be confident in him, that by your Holy Spirit you would that you would allow this word to take root, God, that we would be submitted to your word and obey. Um, Lord, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we, we approach this, this sort of hinge statement in Colossians, we, we see that kind of classic inferential word, therefore, right? And really, the word therefore, it's, it's applying the truth in, in the first five verses of chapter two. But honestly, you can probably go back to everything that he's taught in the book of Colossians so far. And see the application here in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, we were told all about who this Christ is in chapter 1. This hymn of Christ's preeminence, that he is firstborn over all creation, firstborn over all redemption, so that in everything he might be preeminent. And now we're told, as a result of those things that we've learned about Christ, to walk in Christ. And really, the, the phrase, Walk in Christ can sum up everything that happens in the Christian life. So this this inference here in verse 6 is going to really define and outline the rest of the book of Colossians. Walking in Christ. And I think really there's a lot of confusion, maybe even especially today, about what it means to walk in Christ. Um, For some people, to walk in Christ is really this personal faith journey with Christ, right? It's, It's not really anyone else's business. It's one of those two things that you never talk about with anyone else, religion and politics, right? Paul brought that up a a few sermons ago. Um, And so really, because it's this personal faith journey, um, there is no standard by which other people can hold you to. So when we walk in Christ, you're saying, really, you know, God is my judge. You cannot judge me. I can walk in any way I please. I know Christ loves me. He saved me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are you to tell me? That I should walk differently than I am. We see that quite a bit, right? This sort of antinomian rebellion because Jesus has taken our sin away and there's no condemnation for those in Christ. There's also no accountability. Jesus doesn't care how we live. And so citing any sort of standard according to how we live is, is legalism to them. It's a cultish overreach from the church or from the pastoral leaders. And you see that often when, when a pastor checks up on a, someone in the congregation that maybe hasn't been there in a while. When someone is walking in sin and they're approached by a brother or a sister or an elder. And they say, who are you to judge me? But Christ absolutely cares how we live. And if that isn't already abundant in Colossians, I would say you've probably been sleeping through my sermons. That might be easier than I think. But Christ absolutely cares how we live and what we do matters. As as R.C. Sproul used to say, right now counts forever. It does matter how we live. There is a standard by which we must live. And we as Christians are to do all things to the glory of God. That's later in the book of Colossians. And yet on the other side of it, and I think maybe the main um, kind of uh, misconception that Paul is responding to is, is that as equally important is that what we do is the importance of how we do it, the manner in which we do it. For some, the Christian walk is just this pattern of behavior that we must conform to, this, this set of rules externally that as long as we're, we're manifesting that in the things that we do in the body, we're okay. 
We view the Christian walk as a series of laws that we strive to live up to in order to please God or to gain heaven or to become more righteous, to affect our sanctification solely on our own effort, our own willpower. And we are called to walk in obedience to the Lord. That's what this inference is. So walk in Christ. Earlier in the book of Colossians chapter 1, he said, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. There is a standard according to Christ's law, according to his character, that we must walk in to please him. But we do as Christians, not out of a legalistic sort of frustrated anxiety, as if God has done his part and now it's up to us to do the rest. We have to live up to the standard so that we don't screw up what Christ has worked in us. We are, we are as Christians to walk rather out of joyful contentment, out of submissive, submissive to the authority of Christ, walking in thankful confidence in our Lord. There's a real effort and a real obedience and a way of living that befits a Christian, right? That, that shows those who are in Christ and those who aren't. We're known by our fruit. But we are not to walk as if our pattern of behavior and lifestyle depends solely upon our own effort and our own willpower. God is not like man. He doesn't merely look on the outside, on the externals. He judges the heart. And that's what matters here. Walking in Christ is ultimately a matter of the heart. His chief concern is not that we conform to a certain set of external behaviors. His concern, his goal in redemption, is that we are conformed to Christ. Body and soul. So I think that's, that's what this text entails, and it will become more clear as we work through the text. So firstly, we have, in the first half of verse 1, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So in order to understand what it means to walk, we have to define this. What does it mean to receive? I think we all have some sort of conception of this. We've all heard it. Um, And it really is the single most important question we can ask of this text. What does it mean to receive Christ? I would say it's probably the most important question we can ask in life. What does it mean to receive Christ? It's the most pressing question we have to answer as human beings. There is no walking in Christ without first receiving him. For we are to so walk as we have received. And there's many uses of the word received in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. But I think there's four important aspects of it that we see here. Firstly, to have received Christ means that we've received him as our truth, as the truth, as our standard. That's that's really the connotation that the word here for receive, paralambano in the Greek. It's it's as you've received this authoritative, authoritative set of teachings, these doctrines. You can refer to a tradition or a belief which you hold as, as true. And this would really be the gospel, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. We, we saw that back in Colossians chapter 1, that they'd received the word of the truth, the gospel. And it had brought this change in them eternally. We see some examples in Paul's writings elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 1, he says, Now I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelfth. In Galatians 1, verse 9, he says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. 
Philippians 4, verse 9, What have you learned? What you have learned and received and heard and seen and me practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We see another sense in, in the way this word is used, to receive a person as true. In Matthew 10, Jesus talks about receiving a prophet as a true prophet of the Lord, and he'll receive a prophet's reward. The same sense is used of Christ that is coming into the world in John 1. In verse 11, he says, He came to his own. Christ came to his own people, the Jews. And his own people did not receive him. They didn't accept him as true, accept him for who he was. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I think this verse in John specifically gives us a great illustration of what is entailed here in receiving Christ as our truth, as true. It is accepting what is true about Christ and receiving him for who he really is, receiving his word for what it really is, the word of God. We receive him as as true and as the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. As it says in John 14, it means understanding and believing Christ to be who he says he is in his word. That he's God, that he's fully God and fully man, born of a virgin without sin, and that he was made sin. That he bore the sins of his people so that they might receive salvation in him. That he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, where he reigns over all and presents his completed work of atonement to the Father in intercession for his saints. And if you don't believe every word of what and who Jesus has testified about himself to be, you haven't received Jesus as true. But yet this word also does not connote merely a reception or accepting a set of doctrines to be affirmed or an abstract concept. And I think really that's how this word received is defined today in most evangelical contexts. There's this type of bare faith, right, of this intellectual assent or mental assent to the truths of God's word to the truths of the gospel and the truth that is revealed to us from Jesus Christ, which God then rewards with salvation, right? We quote Romans 10 quite a bit. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. We've quoted that so many times, right? There's a a church camp not far from here that quotes that a lot. And and I I have to be honest, I have seen hundreds, if, if not thousands, of false conversions born of that very line of reasoning. We see this all around us today. It's this pragmatic strategy of simply trying to convince people of the truthfulness of the gospel and then getting them to profess an affirmation of this truth and then telling them that they're saved. We we get them to make a decision for Christ and we tell them not ever to question it, right? They've, They've said it out loud. They've said the magic words. They're saved. And if you doubt it, that's the devil at work. And so much of the efforts of today's Christian apologists is spent on that, thinking that if people become convinced that Jesus really rose from the dead, that they would repent and trust him, right? So much effort is spent on trying to defend the historicity of the resurrection apart from the scriptures, right? They think as long as someone believes that God really walked out or that Jesus as God really walked out of the grave, then that they'll just drop on their knees and repent and trust him. But what does Jesus say about that? What does Jesus say about the the skeptics and the religious rulers of his day, if they have not believed the word which spoke of thee, if they have not believed the law and the prophets, they would not believe even if someone rose from the dead. And he was right. They didn't believe. They covered it up. 
And it's the same today. You can convince an unbeliever of the historicity of the resurrection. You can convince an unbeliever of the truthfulness or the reasonableness of everything that is in the Christian faith. And that does not make him a Christian. And that's because it's not enough to give mental assent to the truthfulness of the gospel or the genuineness of Jesus Christ. Getting someone to make a confession or a profession of faith based on external pressure or or manipulation will not save them. It, It can't impart true faith to them. And this happens so often today. I've already said that, but we, we get kids that are emotionally manipulated, intellectually convinced. They walk an aisle, they sign a card, they make a decision, and it does nothing for them but temporarily ease their consciences and give them a false assurance that they are right with the Holy God, without repentance, without life change, without any transformation, without renewal of their mind. It's a false conversion, it's a false assurance, and that's not how the Colossians received Christ. That's not how we received Christ. And really, despite the active voice used here in the word received, the emphasis is not really on us receiving. It's on God giving. It's on what we have received as a gift from God. The emphasis is what what Christ has become to the Colossians when God gave him to them. And it's the same with us. We did not take Christ. We did not choose to receive Christ. It is not a matter of our accepting him, but God delivering him to us. God revealing him to us. Making him true to us. Rendering us certain of his truthfulness in the depths of our souls. Because that's what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for in Hebrews 11.1. The certainty of what we do not see. For we who have received Christ, he is to us reality. He is to us substance. And we are certain of him. Our reception of Christ cannot be, should not be, in the way a Buddhist receives the teachings of Buddha. Or a Muslim receives Muhammad. Or a Mormon receives the words of Joseph Smith. It's not the way a modern intellectual receives and accepts the lives and works of those who came before him. For us, the truth of Jesus Christ, it's not not a matter of history books or biography. It's not enough to affirm that Jesus once walked the earth. That the truth of Jesus Christ is not that we acknowledge his existence or the truthfulness or even the usefulness of his teachings. It's that he is to us a present reality. He's closer to us than any brother or father or friend. He's more real to us than any of our own lived experiences. Right? He's more true to us than our own judgment. And that's believing in his name in John 1. It's not simply believing things about Jesus, but believing Jesus, trusting in Jesus. Whatever Jesus says, we believe. We receive is true. Jesus' words, his teachings, they determine the way that we process and we view our own experiences. And I think this is a, a stark contrast from the way many who push that kind of intellectual decisionism view receiving Christ. I mean, some of those same men that spend all of their time trying to convince people that the resurrection actually happened in history, when they're asked whether they're 100% sure that Christ rose from the dead, that they're 100% sure that God exists, that they are certain of these things, they say they aren't. They say no, they they may be 99% sure. They may be convinced beyond reasonable doubt, as someone like William Lane Craig has said, but they are not sure that God is real, that Christ has risen from the dead, that Jesus is alive in them. I mean, think about that even in terms of our own experiences. Someone asked me, 
how I feel about my wife. And I say, I love her. She's, she's amazing. She's so gracious and kind to me. And I am 99% sure that she exists. Right? That's ridiculous to us. There, there's no genuine relationship I'm having with my wife at that point. And it's the same way with God. It's the same way with Christ. Faith is not speculation. It's not reasonable assurance. It's absolute certainty of what God has revealed. That's how those in John 1 received Christ. They were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's because that certainty of Christ is not something you can work up in yourself. It's something God has done to you and in you. That's the whole sense of the word mystery used in reference to Christ in Colossians. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. The mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. Listen, when we hear the word mystery today in our Western understanding, it's a conundrum, right? It's something that we can't fully understand. That's not the way God uses it in his word. It's something that was meant to be revealed. Something that is now so clear and so plain. It's standing as a burning cross on the top of a hill. We can see it and we can understand it because God has shown the light of Christ into our darkened hearts. That's what it means to receive Christ, to have Christ revealed to us. That's what happened to the Colossians in chapter 1. And this happened to us. The word of the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ came to us. And God, by his Holy Spirit, used it to open our eyes. We have received Christ, if we have received Christ, because we were born, not of blood, not of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. God has made Christ true to us. And that's why he is the truth to us. He's real to us, certain and unchangeable to us. We do the receiving here, yet our receiving is a result of what God has first done in us. To give us understanding and eyes to see and ears to hear. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of Christ. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Without this work of God, God revealing Christ to you so that he becomes to you wisdom from God, Christ will never be more than a name to you. He'll never be more than an idea or a figure in history. To the unregenerate person, the truth of Christ is foolishness because he doesn't conceive of how it could be real. But those who are born of God, through the Spirit's working through the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ is the one thing we know to be true. Though every one of our experiences proved to be false, though every man a liar, and everything else we know for certain in this world proved to be lies. What he says is reality. What is wrong to Jesus is wrong to us. What is right and good to Jesus is objectively true, objectively right to us. He is our standard by which we judge everything else. If it doesn't accord with Jesus' word, with Jesus' character, it doesn't matter how real it seems to our experiences, 
It doesn't matter how real or true it seems to our judgment. If it doesn't accord with Christ, who is reality, then it is not reality. He is our standard. And I think that's why, secondly, receiving Christ Jesus is a matter of receiving him as our authority. Not just as the truth, but as our authority. If we receive him as the truth, as our standard, we also accept his absolute, unqualified, sovereign, personal authority over everything in life. Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, kurios, sovereign one. And as much as we are not to seek wisdom or truth or a standard anywhere else but in Christ, neither are we to seize authority for ourselves or to cede the authority of Christ to someone else. He is Lord over our knowledge and our understanding, our doctrine. He is Lord over the forms of our religion, the ways in which we live and fight against our sin. He's Lord over the way that we relate to other authorities, to government and the church leaders, the way that we relate to our spouses and our children. He is Lord over our employment. He is our master. We work for him and our supervision of others. He is our king, right? As it says in chapter one, for God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And yet I think there's also, as with truth, there's an aspect of this in which it's not enough to just acknowledge the general sovereignty, the general authority of Christ. Right? Christ absolutely reigns over all of heaven and all of earth, every government, every power. We know this to be true. But he also reigns specially and specifically in the hearts of his saints. It's not as if he has more authority in the church. Right. But there is a level of submission and acknowledgement by those who are his. Right. And because of that, they receive the benefits of Christ. Right. Those other enemies of Christ, which are submitted under the feet of Christ, those unbelievers and unbelieving governments and atheistic regimes overseas, they don't receive the benefits of Christ as savior. But we who have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, we have in him redemption. The forgiveness of sins. That only happens when we are personally submitted to the authority of Christ. To receive Christ as your authority is to recognize that you belong to him, body and soul. You have been transferred into his kingdom. He is your king. His standard is your standard. His morality is your morality. His word is your command. I want to be careful here, but I, I want to address what I, what I perceive to be a, a growing kind of disconnect in, in the Christian walk and really in the Christian church in a lot of ways. We, we see this common refrain, and it's a good refrain, right? No king but Christ. That's true. Our ultimate authority is Christ. But if you look at the lives of some people who proclaim that, really what they should be saying is no king at all. Because they use this phrase, no king but Christ, in relation to civil authorities and judges and law enforcement and workplaces. And they really use it as a cry of rebellion, a mocking defiance of any biblically ordained authorities in their lives. They spurn the laws of the land. They disdain Christian accountability from their brothers and sisters in Christ. They mock church discipline. They wear their antinomian, anarchist, self-sufficient pride like a badge. Because Christ's authority to them is a means of rejecting any other authority. 
And that's not how we walk as Christians. If you are not submitted to a local church, if you're not subject to biblical elders, to the authorities that Christ has placed over you, if you've rejected every other authority under Christ, what makes you think that you're being submitted to Christ? What makes you think that you're submitting yourself to Christ if you don't submit to every other authority that He has put in place under you? You can't be. The kingship of Christ means nothing to them. And it means nothing to us but judgment unless He is our King, unless He is personally our authority. Because if you are not in Christ, you are an enemy of Christ who will be submitted under the feet of Christ. You can be in his kingdom or you can be under his kingdom. Those are your options. And yet again, this itself is a sovereign work of God in our souls. Because for us who have received Christ, for whom the Spirit has shown light of Christ into our souls and opened our eyes to the truth of Christ, he's also softened our hearts. He's also submitted our wills to Christ Jesus our Lord. And... and Submission really is is a dirty word in our culture, right? But we as Christians should love that word. Should love that word. Because Christ Jesus is our Lord. He's our Lord. We love to submit to Christ. It's the joyful response of those who by faith have seen Christ for who He really is. As, as Lord of heaven and earth, the Lamb standing as though slain, the Savior and Shepherd of our souls. Why wouldn't we want to submit to that man, to that God-man, to that Lord? And that leads me to thirdly, because we've received Jesus as Savior, as our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, as Paul has said in 1 Corinthians. And I say your Savior here, not the Savior as with every other aspect of Christ, it means nothing to you unless it is applied personally. To receive Christ is not simply to receive the truth that He is Savior, to accept that He is Christ, right? We see that decisionism and it says, do you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross to save your sins? And we say, yes. And, and suddenly they're saved, right? That's not what it means. The blood must be applied to you. As it was applied to the doorframe, right? When the angel of death was passing over the houses. When God was leading his people out of Egypt, that's what it must be to us. It is applied to the doorframe of our souls. The wrath of God passes over us because we are under the sacrifice of the Lamb. You can believe Christ's salvation and finished work to be real. You can believe it to be effective. You can believe it to be sufficient. But unless you have received it for your own, it provides no benefit to you. To receive Christ in the way that Paul speaks of it is to depend on Him as truth and as Christ. And when you believe in Jesus, His blood cleanses your sin. His righteousness becomes your covering. His Spirit fills your inner being. He becomes as much yours, or really more yours, more of your possession than anything else you own in this life. Everything else you have in this life is loaned to you. You can't take it with you. You maybe can hold on to it for a couple of years, but it's not yours. The only thing you have as a possession that you have forever is Christ. The only benefits you have forever, the only thing that is stored up for you forever is Christ and His righteousness and the benefits of Christ as Savior. Even the way, the, the, the tense, the aorist tense in the Greek of the way this word received is, it's, it's this aorist tense which means once for all. 
This has happened once. Christ is, we don't receive Christ repeatedly. We don't receive Christ continually. He has been given to us once and forever. If you've received Christ, he's given to you irrevocably and there's no losing what you've received. Christ is yours forever and neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come nor powers earthly or spiritual or anything else in all creation can rob you of what you've gained in Christ. And really, we haven't even begun to understand in the book of Colossians what it means to have gained in Christ, what the benefits of Christ are. It's in him that we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. But really, more than that, you are joined to Christ. You are in union with him by faith. So his death on the cross is your death to sin. His resurrection from the grave is your resurrection unto spiritual life. His ascension to the right hand of the Father is our ascension Being raised up. The pleading of his blood is our pleading. Everything that Christ is, we have. Everything that Christ has done, we have been joined to. And so now when God looks at us and he sees Christ, he is infinitely pleased with us. Because he's infinitely pleased with Christ. These are all the benefits that we've gotten in him. His his righteous, perfect obedience to the Father is credited to you as a gift by faith. His finished work, the basis of your eternal security... Christ as your Savior means Christ as your life, as Colossians 3 says. Therefore, if you have died, or if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. To have received Christ not only means that he is the Christ, that he is the church's Christ, is that he is your Christ. He is your Savior. And I would urge you, it's an easy application to make, but can you say that this morning? How do you speak of the benefits of Christ? Listen, because we can fellowship for an hour afterward and you can talk about how good the benefits of Christ are. But can you speak of them as if you've received them? As if they are your benefits. Can you talk about Jesus Christ as if he is your own? You can acknowledge all that Christ is for the people of God. You can be up here even and speak eloquently and deeply about all the blessings that Christians have in Christ. But if you have not received them, that knowledge is worthless. All of that training, all of that understanding of the word. And you cannot access those blessings without... First, God having given him to you, you receiving him, blessed, you depend upon him desperately and unreservedly and solely as your only hope in life and death. The blessings of Christ are not meant to be admired. They're meant to be received. They're meant to be experienced. They're meant to be enjoyed. And ultimately, that's true, not just of the blessings of Christ, but of Christ himself, because we who have received Christ, I've already mentioned it. We have received Christ Jesus as as truth and as Lord and as Savior. Ultimately, we've received Christ himself as our possession and our inheritance. Because Paul doesn't say here, as you've received Jesus' words, or as you've received Jesus' authority, or as you've received Christ's great salvation. He says, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord. 
And this is essentially the greatest encouragement that Paul offers to the Colossians in the book. This Christ, the author of truth, the king into whose kingdom they have been transferred, the firstborn of all creation, creator and sustainer of all things, head of the church, firstborn from the dead, the great savior and minister and shepherd of their souls, the one who has all power and all authority over heaven and earth, the one in whom all wisdom and knowledge resides, is given to them as their possession. So all of those things that I just listed about Christ, they become ours to enjoy. They become ours. Everything that Christ has, we have. Those who are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ, we're not really received the blessings of Christ or the blessings of God's covenant of redemption, not merely the purchase of Christ's blood. We've received Christ himself. And that can never be taken Away from you. And this is really the, the climax of Paul's presentation here in Colossians. It doesn't mean that we become the truth or that we become the Lord, but everything God is for us in Christ, He has given us in Christ. And really, this is the center, the climax of the gospel message, right? Any gospel message that focuses on the benefits that we receive from Christ rather than Christ Himself is a man centered gospel. I mean, think about it. Most gospel presentations you would hear, they focus on gaining heaven, not getting Christ. But getting Christ is the true gospel. Gaining heaven is incidental. It's a byproduct of what you've received in Christ. Right? Any blessing that you've received peripheral to Christ is not the center of the gospel. It focuses on Christ himself as your possession. And this really may seem all basic to you this morning. I'm sure all of us have heard this. Several times, but this is what saves souls, right? This is what saved our souls. And this is absolutely essential to the Christian's walk. We have to have this understanding first before we can ever try to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We have no life apart from Christ. And without union in Christ, there is no spiritual walk, right? Paul, Paul's imperative here. It's not walk with him. It's not walk after him. It's not walk according to his example. It is walk in him. So walk in him. That's because ultimately in relation to the statement, as you've received Christ, here in the second half of verse 6, the so walk in him is simply knowing, treasuring, and enjoying Christ. Glorifying and enjoying him for who he is and for what you have in him, enjoying his riches of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and righteousness and holiness, all of those things that are true about Christ, simply enjoying him in every context of your lives. Possessing Christ leads to enjoying Christ, and this is really the Christian's walk. And that's why we have these, these sort of defining words that Paul gives in verse 7. Um, in reference to walking in him in verse 6. Firstly, it says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. This is what it means to walk in Christ. And that first word rooted, is it's the idea of being planted in Christ or upon Christ. We draw our spiritual nourishment and our vitality from him. We're tethered to him in a way that we can never depart from him. Any, any more than a, a tree could get up and leave its roots behind. The idea is of abiding in Christ, in his word, in his teachings, in his character. And this is in the perfect tense. This is always true about the Christian. This is to always be true about the Christian. Because the Christian walk is done. It's fueled by abiding in Christ. Who is your source but Christ? 
And that's really, this determines every imperative that he gives later, right? He talks about not being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He is wisdom. Christ is the wisdom and knowledge of God. In him are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Why listen to another philosophy? Why listen to another source of wisdom? Right? You already have more wisdom in Christ than you could get anywhere else. The best the world can offer is the appearance of wisdom. As he says later in chapter 2, that these things, this asceticism and denial of the flesh, this kind of willpower resistance of sin, it only has the appearance of wisdom. It has no power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. We already have the source of stopping the indulgence of the flesh, of resisting our sin in Christ. So the Christian walk is not one of of grudging obedience, of, of depriving yourself of pleasure so that you can be holy. It's finding Christ as your pleasure instead of the, the sinful passions which used to control you. It's leaning on his understanding of what's good and right for you as God's creation and as God's child. He knows all and he knows you best. He's also your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. It says here in in chapter 2, verse 14, or 13 rather. Um, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a lot... Oh, sorry. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There is no external circumcision which does good to your soul. There is no external means of purity. It has to be made without hands. It's made by Christ. Why try to overcome your sin by any other means? He's your only hope. Why trust in something or someone else for fulfillment? He is your master. Why live as if you are the captain of your own soul? Why live as if someone else's supervision of you supersedes Christ? And I think one of the great realities of this wisdom of God that is given to us in Christ is that it does not change. It's as timeless as he is. And really, that's the reason why we come into conflict with the cultures around us, right? The cultures are always changing. They're always progressing. They're always changing their their ideals or their morality, their standards. Those who are driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine, they change with the seasons. But we stay rooted to our God in Christ. Christ does not change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13 tells us this. And because of that, we do not change. In this sense of staying to Christ as our authority, as our fullness, as our satisfaction, we stay rooted in Him and we live as we always have. Our standards do not change. So we shouldn't be shaken or concerned when we come into conflict with the culture. It's going to ebb and flow. There may be some time where a culture comes back around to a Christian understanding through some efforts and through some preaching of the gospel. And at that point, we're going to keep on doing what we've always done. And 20 years down the road, the culture is going to change again. They're going to redefine marriage. They're going to talk about life differently than how God has defined it. We stay rooted. We don't change. And yet there also is a sense of progression in the Christian walk. This is the, the phrase built up in him. The word is in the present tense. It's being done to us. 
We, as God's building, as the work which God began, is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made daily more like the Lord. There is a sense in which we change. We become more conformed to that standard that does not change. We're being strengthened and completed by God. We're made more like Christ in our thoughts and our character and our love for God and for others. And this activity of God in our lives is what manifests itself in our Christian walk in a million different ways. We become more patient with our children or our spouses. We become more gracious in our speech to others. We're slower to anger. We're quicker to listen. We're less likely to think about ourselves. This is the progression of the Christian walk. It's not as if we are gaining something in ourselves, but rather we are being reformed back to that image of Christ, conformed to that image of Christ. We're also being established in the faith. This is in the present tense as well. It's being done to us as we are made more like Christ. We are being, as Paul puts it, renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. We're becoming, by the grace of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, more settled in the faith more sure of what God has revealed, gaining an increased knowledge of the height and length and depth and breadth of God's love as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Christ is becoming more and more to us the wisdom of God as we learn more about His righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And because of that, we and the Colossians before us were made more stable and steadfast, not likely to shift from the hope of the gospel. God really makes us more faithful. And it might be surprising to you. So these three words that define the Christian walk, none of them are in the active voice. None of these define things that we primarily do, right? These are all things that God does to us, that God does in us. Because the Christian walk in its ultimate sense is not about us walking. It's not about us doing. It's about God doing in us. But there is one word that's in the active voice, and we have it here, abounding in thanksgiving. I would say this may even be our primary responsibility in response to God's gracious work in our souls and our hearts and our minds and our bodies. And that's not to say that we don't have to expend any effort in the Christian life, that we don't that we don't desperately fight against our sin, that we don't struggle to obey the commands of Christ. But in a greater sense, everything we do in the Christian life is simply being done to us as a gift from God. We never stop receiving in this sense. And that's the core truth and mindset that we should have in the Christian life. Our walking in Christ is not primarily about our efforts. And if we reduce it to that, Simply that walking in Christ, that obeying Christ, is simply a matter of what we do, of how we walk, of how we obey. We will strip the Christian life of any pleasure, of any satisfaction in Christ. And we'll become frustrated, and we'll become embittered, and eventually we might become rebellious to the laws of God. Right? Think about the way the psalmist in Psalm 119 sings about the law of God. The longest single literary unit in the Bible Right? I don't even know how many verses. I'm sure Randy could tell you how many verses it is. It's a lot, right? It takes up a lot of space there in the Psalter. And, and the entirety of it is singing his delight about the law of God, about the instruction of God, about the wisdom of God. He's not singing that way because he's mastered it. He's singing that way because it's mastered him. Because God is mastering him, is mastering his soul and his will and his heart. 
And if you primarily reduce the Christian walk to a set of rules, this, this standard that we have to conform to every day and not make the Christian walk about conformity to Christ, about finding pleasure in Christ, you will become so frustrated, so burnt out, so rebellious that you will strip the Christian life of any blessing that is there for you. We will be prideful and hardened and embittered toward others and finally toward God. The Christian's walk, his, his life of obedience is one fueled not by fear, not by, not by duty, but by joy. And it's impossible to do that until Christ is our joy. That's why you have this, this indicative here, as you have received Christ. And that's why Paul prefaces his instructions to walk with what we've received in Christ with his prayer in chapter 1. That we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I meant to reference this in my notes, actually, and Randy read it at our call to worship. That's also the sense of this prayer in Ephesians 3. Starting in verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We would understand the fullness of what we have been given in Christ, that we would rejoice in who we have as our inheritance, that we would have access to what we have access to in Christ is the fullness of God. And that in joy, we would delight in God's precepts and his instruction and his mission and will for our lives out of an overflow of our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Because that's really what the Christian walk is. It's an overflow, an overflow of the joy, an overflow of the satisfaction that we have in Jesus. And I think that's really how this word abound could or maybe should be translated here. It's translated that way in the, the NASB overflowing in thanksgiving. That walking in Christ as the fullness of God, experiencing His divine and transformative work in our souls and minds and lives would overflow in joy into thanksgiving to God. Because this is our true, our active response to what God has done in us. To what God has given us in Jesus Christ. The life of a Christian who is glorifying God and enjoying Him is not characterized by complaining, not characterized by conflict or frustration or anxiety, backbiting, gossip, slander, rivalry, discontentment. It's not characterized mainly by strain or by effort. It's characterized by thanksgiving. If there is one sign of a person who's growing in Christ, if there is one sign of a person who has truly received Christ, who is truly in Christ, who is saved by Christ, it's thanksgiving. That's the primary characteristic of a Christian, I would say. It's gratitude. Does that characterize you in your Christian walk? If not, why not? Have you not received Christ in this way? So walk in Him. If you, as the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you're saved, act like it. That's essentially what Paul is saying. That's, that's the simple reduction of what he's giving us here. If you are not saved, you cannot be satisfied you cannot have rest, and you cannot walk in Christ. You can pretend to do it for a while. 
Right? And so many of, of the, the cults and the errors in Christianity, they start with walking in Christ and they end with receiving Christ. Right? Their version of Paul would say, as you walked in Christ, now receive Christ as your reward. But that's not true. We have received Christ as a reward, not because of efforts done by us, not because of works of righteousness, but simply by God's grace. And because of that, because of our pleasure in what we've received, because of our joy in that though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That though we were yet dead in our sins, unable to see the beauty of Christ, God opened our eyes that we would see Christ for who he was and then just gave him to us. Free. Free forever. Ours forever. Christ forevermore. All we are yet responsible for doing in that sense then is walking in gratitude. Singing and thanksgiving to our God. So if you find yourself this morning trying to walk according to the commands of Christ and you have no joy in Christ, I would urge you, plead with you to turn to him, trust in him, cry out to God until Christ be formed in you, until God has given you Christ in this way. Don't rest upon a decision that you made. Don't rest upon an act of your will, an act of the flesh. All those things have is an appearance of wisdom. It is infinitely, eternally foolish to rely on anything that you can do to save yourself. The Christian life is one about receiving from God, grace upon grace. What we have in the fullness of Christ, grace and truth. But if you're certain this morning, by virtue of the Spirit's testimony to your soul and the evidence of His work in your life, that you have received Christ, just as you have received by grace, according to God's kindness and provision, so walk. So you walk. He who planted you, he builds you up and establishes you and makes you more like Christ in whom now you live, with whom you are joined and to whom you belong. All that is left for you to do is thanksgiving. Think back on your life. Look at who you were. Right? Look at who you are now by God's grace. Have you thanked him for that? Have you acknowledged God for that? That's our primary responsibility. That is our joy that we would dwell in the house of our Lord forever in Christ, singing thanks to him for what he has done. Acknowledge him. Remember all of his benefits to you and give thanks to him. Let your joy and satisfaction in Christ overflow in thanksgiving to your God. What other response can you truly have? The Christian's walk is active It requires effort, but our activity is little more than joyful, thankful overflow from the satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, in an imperative like this, when we talk about walking in Christ, I could list a million different areas of our life and talk about different contingencies and situations and say, well, this is the right choice to make if you're a Christian. This is the right thing to do as a Christian. But if you don't understand this principle, all that will do is give you a heart of pride and of bitterness. You must understand this before you try to do anything else in obedience to the Lord. You must have received him to walk in him. Remember the day that you received Christ. Think back to that time. Right? There was little you could do at that time. You were, you were overflowing with joy, with hope, with peace. And that is how Christ is to be to us every day of our lives. 
He's our only hope, our joy, having our all in him, our work and study and marriages and relationships and fellowship. It's all in Christ. Remember who Christ was to you the day you clung to the cross for mercy. I mean, how perverse is it that he would not be that way to us now? That he would not be that satisfying, that, that hopeful to us, that joyful to us now? He is all. He is all that he was then, and he's more to you now. As you received him as the fullness of God, the very best thing that God could ever give you, so walk in him as long as God gives you breath. And thank him for the gift of Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you'd bow with me. Father, I have, I have little to say to you other than thank you, God, for what you have done for us, what you have done in us, God, for the gift of your word. Lord, that you have not left us without a witness, but you continually bear witness to us, to our souls, Lord, of the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would find ultimately our hope and our peace, our satisfaction in him, God. Lord, that you would seek out any wickedness in us, God. If there is any pride, any self-reliance, God, that keeps us from your gospel, keeps us from salvation in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would humble us today. Help us to rely on you for everything that we need. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.